This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. When you need energy on the go and don't have time to wait in line, grab Espresso Monster. Espresso Monster is a premium blend of espresso and cream made with freshly brewed espresso coffee, hormone-free milk, and a unique energy blend complete with taurine and B vitamins. Each can has three shots of espresso and comes in vanilla espresso and espresso and cream flavors. I had one this morning before I came into the studio, and let me tell you, it gave me just the boost I needed to get my day going. Plus, it tastes so delicious, I'd drink it anyway. So close your eyes, take a sip, and enjoy Espresso Monster today. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. When it was first announced that former Trump White House staffer Cliff Sims had signed a million-dollar book deal, many people's first reaction was, Who? That's because, unlike others in Trump's orbit who routinely make the round of Sunday morning talk shows and feed sound bites to cable news channels on a daily basis, Cliff Sims kept a low profile. Given the long list of ex-White House staffers who broke the cardinal rule in Trump world, never upstage the president, perhaps Cliff Sims' lack of an agenda and aversion to showboating account for why the president took a liking to him. In fact, in his new book, Team of Vipers, My 500 Extraordinary Days in the Trump White House, he says he even considered the president a friend. And today, he comes on the podcast to talk about that unusual friendship and the bizarre office politics that he describes as a cross between Game of Thrones and Veep. He shares the real-life story behind the fiasco around Trump's inauguration attendance, why the administration takes chaos, infighting, and disorganization to a whole new level, and how many times the president's senior staff learn about major policy decisions on cable news or, worse, Twitter. He recalls helping draw up Trump's notorious enemies list, how he learned that Kellyanne Conway was leaking information to the press, and why he believes former White House Chief of Staff John Kelly had it in for him. He discusses how he reconciles his own conservative evangelical values with the president's less-than-Christian behavior, how he came to grips with the hard-learned lesson that everyone is disposable to Donald Trump, and how he feels now that the president has disavowed him and his book in typical Trump fashion via angry tweet. Plus, the mooch is on the loose, Sean Spicer needs a refrigerator, and the greatest mystery of all, Donald Trump's hair. Coming up with Cliff Sims in just a moment. Cliff Sims joined the Trump for President campaign in 2016 and then served as White House Director of Message Strategy to President Trump. He says if Lincoln had a team of rivals, President Trump has a team of vipers. That's the title of his new book, Team of Vipers, My 500 Extraordinary Days in the Trump White House. Cliff Sims, welcome to the podcast. 
Uh, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Well, Cliff, this has been an interesting day already for you. The book launched today, <laughs> and in response to the book, the president has already tweeted saying that you are, quote, a low-level staffer, a gopher, and a mess, and your book is boring, which perhaps in Trump's world is the worst thing you can call someone. <laughs> um, you gave 15 months of your life in service to this man. How does that feel? You know, in a weird way, it kind of doesn't feel like anything. Really? That, that's probably like How's the strangest that? thing about it all that, you know, obviously, if, if you're going to go into writing a book about uh, your time in Trump world, uh, you know that there's a chance that you're going to be the proud recipient of a tweet at some point. And I guess I expected it to feel different than it does. I just didn't have any <laughs> real reaction to it. Um, and I guess you know, part of it is ultimately... You know, my identity is not wrapped up in what Donald Trump has to say about me or anybody else has mm -hmm. to say about me. I find that uh, in my faith. And, you know, so I'm, I'm confident in who I am and uh, I'm proud of the book that I wrote. And I think that we've told a or think that I've told the, the true story, the good, the bad and the otherwise uh, about working in the Trump White House. And so, yeah, man, I, I, it just didn't bother me. Apparently, like many of Trump's other White House aides, you signed a non-disclosure agreement, which is actually pretty unusual for a White House staff. But the president, who is famously litigious, now says he's going to sue you. Are you worried about a lawsuit? Well, I haven't gotten any legal notices yet, so yeah. all we've seen is, is tweets. Uh, so I'd be, I, I'm probably not respond to that until there's uh, something more than yeah. tweets to it. The president said he barely knew you in this tweet. On the contrary, you say that you actually struck up a friendship with the president, and as a result, you may have had far more access to him than your title would have ordinarily warranted in a typical White House. Why do you yeah. think he liked having you around? Well, I think uh, a couple of things to that. One, it's important to understand that in the, the Trump hierarchy or the Trump kind of org chart is different than what the official org chart would look like, which <laughs> would be, you know, a chief of staff at the top and the deputy chiefs of staff under him and the right. department heads and kind of going down. Trump's hierarchy is kind of like, do I know this person? Mm -hmm. And, you know, he'll ping anybody for, you know, advice or thoughts on anything under the sun. And I think part of what I tried to do uh, with him was just talk to him like he's a normal human, mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, you know, he's always you're always deferential. It's the president. We're not on the same level. He's my boss. Um, but, you know, the president of the United States wants to have normal conversations with people, too, mm -hmm. uh, about, you know, things in the news or about golf or about just whatever it may be. And I think that may be one of the ways that, that we kind of struck up like an easy relationship was just that that we kind of I, I would talk to him like a normal person. So whereas, you know, he had Paul Ryan and other people coming in and talking to him about policy, which you say he didn't express that much interest in, you were able to talk to him about normal people stuff, gossip and that kind of thing. And that piqued his interest or at least made him feel well, he, a little bit like a human being again. <laughs> yeah, but even on the policy front, oh, even really? on things of, of substance, I think that the way to best communicate with Donald Trump is uh, he calls it chemistry. You see him talk about it all the time mm -hmm. with foreign leaders. Right. You know, I had a great chemistry with President Xi. I had a, you know, whatever it may be. And I think that's the way that he sums up uh, being able to have a relaxed conversation with someone, which is difficult when it's the president of the United States. And it's difficult when it's, you know, kind of diplomatic protocols are in Involved, and it really is tough sometimes, even when you're dealing with, you know, congressional leaders with the president of the same party. You know, there's a real formality about, uh, you know, those interactions. And, and Trump likes to dispense with those type of, of formalities. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something to learn for even, even these congressional members who are interacting with him. Even when you're talking about issues of policy and substance and that kind of thing, 
being able to do it in a way that is authentic and, and less formal, uh, I think he always responds better to that. From the outside looking in, it often appears that the president makes huge decisions like the shutdown or the Syria withdrawal on a whim. As someone who's been in the room during pivotal policy discussions, how does the president go about making a decision? What's his process like? Yeah. Well, that's a that's a great question. I actually try to spend a decent amount of time in Team of Vipers helping people kind of get inside his head and make sense of exactly the kind of things that you're talking about that from the outside looking in are, are tough, tough to make heads or tails of. And one of the things that I, I think I've really learned in interacting with him, he always has a gut level instinctual response to whatever it may be. And he's going to more often than not go with his gut. He really trusts his his gut level instinct. And so he starts from there. And if he ends up changing his mind, it's going to take a lot of effort. He's going to have to be presented with some very compelling evidence, usually evidence that is basically framed in a way that, hey, this is why it is in your best interest to do it, Mm -hmm. you know, differently than what you're thinking about here. But more often than not, this style of shooting from the hip and making very important policy decisions based on his gut instinct has not served him well, and he wastes a lot of time and political capital for nothing, the government shutdown being a perfect example. Does he not realize how counterproductive that is to his own agenda? But I, I do think that, that um, you know, this kind of gut-level reactions and, and policymaking has its good and bad side to it. I think a lot of people focus on the kind of chaotic negative aspect of that, uh, which I'll get into in a second. But one of the positives of it is I think that, um, you know, his kind of freewheeling, uh, creative chaos type style does sometimes lead to better decisions. He puts people in a room, lets them argue in it, lets them argue it out. Uh, he's thinking big. He's trying to do big things. And, and, and so I, I do think there's some positives to it. The negative is once the president makes a decision, the, the federal leviathan is so big that there have to be really good processes in place by which the president's directives get implemented. Mm-hmm. That's where sometimes we see a breakdown uh, in this presidency. And, and I think it probably manifested itself right out of the gate of those who remember the, uh, the so-called travel ban that, right. um, you know, tweets it out or, it, it, you know, they start rolling this policy out. And the federal government, the hundreds of thousands of people out there, TSA or Homeland Security or whoever it was that have to implement all these things, they were not ready for the process that goes along with such a sweeping directive. On the lighter side, you recount some of the more farcical moments during your tenure. In fact, you describe working in the Trump White House as something like Game of Thrones, but with the characters from (laughs) Veep. What's the most absurd incident you can recall? Well, probably my favorite chapter in the entire book is uh, titled The Mooch is Loose. (laughs) And that 11 days... You could you could write an entire TV series off of those, you know, 30 pages in the book because it's just like just unbelievable stuff that was going on behind the scenes there. But the other one that I always remember is I get a phone call at like, you know, 930 at night or something like that. A colleague of mine is still at work across the street from the White House in the Eisenhower building where most of the White House staff works. And he said, man, I just saw the weirdest thing. He said, I just saw Sean Spicer toting a mini fridge out of the EEOB with a cord like <laughs> hanging out behind him. Like, I don't know. So it turns out Sean Spicer is like in an argument with some lower level staffers in the Eisenhower building over who was going to get to keep this mini fridge. And he basically hijacked it after they left work one night. <laughs> and so that's the, when I say the characters from Veep, that's, uh, yeah. that's the kind of things I think of. And you admit that you had issues with Spicer and a number of other Trump staffers. In fact, 
you once helped Donald Trump craft his so-called enemies list. Mm -hmm. But bizarrely, it wasn't like Nixon's enemies list where it was targeting his enemies outside the administration. Trump's Mm -hmm. list consisted entirely of enemies from within. Who was on that list? And are some of them still working in the White House today? Yeah, well, let me paint a picture for your listeners here. Please. You know, there was a, it was a time early on in the administration when the president was reading a lot of anonymous quotes from White House officials criticizing him. And he's looking around and he's saying, who are these people? These people supposedly work for me. Like, who is doing this? And so I basically gave my two cents on on who I thought that those people were and kind of how I framed that up was, you know, it was a group of people who abandoned you in the campaign. And then they came into the White House and now they're, you know, bailing on you again when time get times get hard. And so I listed a number of people in there, whether it be, you know, Sean Spicer or Reince Priebus and uh, some others that your listeners probably would have never heard of, but staffers in various parts of, of, of the White House who I witnessed in meetings criticizing Trump and rolling their eyes and, you know, whatever. And in retrospect, it's one of those moments that that I regret, Uh, even though I didn't lie about anyone. I gave my honest assessment and that kind of thing. In retrospect, um, I I had gotten myself caught up when I say team of vipers. You know, there were times when I was a viper, too. And so here I am creating this enemies list that consists of my colleagues. And I just don't think there was anything honorable about doing that. And so I try to be very open and transparent and honest. If, if I'm going to talk about other people, the president and other staffers, and give honest assessments of what I saw, I need to be able to, to do that about myself as well. And that's one of the moments in the book where I, I try to do that. Well, I do want to give you credit for that. And I think your willingness to be self-critical and open up about your own mistakes actually lends more credibility to your story. You admit that you share part of the blame for some of the administration's mm-hmm. more notable blunders. Is mm-hmm. there one that stands out in particular? Ooh, well, the one I remember the, the most is the first one. Yeah. Uh, the first day we were in the White House, uh, Sean Sp- Spicer infamously goes out and gives this statement where uh, he says that Donald Trump had the largest election or inaugural crowd in history and, and that kind of thing. And what people didn't know is behind the scenes is I wrote that statement. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in our defense, if I can a little bit, you know, we're sitting in the press secretary's office and we've been given this directive to push back on this narrative. And we're sitting there with the head of the inaugural committee and he's given us a lot of different numbers and stats and figures and facts. And I'm kind of compiling it on on my laptop. And the argument that I kind of landed on was like, OK, we can look a B at the pictures here. We can tell the Obama inaugural crowd is bigger uh, but gosh, it was a clear day. It was rainy on Trump's. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that. But right. ultimately, we said, you know what? The Internet is is so much more widespread than it was in 2008. There were more people watching online, certainly. So, yes, it probably by objective measure probably was the most watched inauguration in history by virtue <laughs> of that. Sean leaned a little bit further into the old the in-person aspect of, of that than yeah. we uh, we initially wanted to. But, you know, whatever. We place blame where we want to. But mm-hmm. I certainly share uh, some of it. And, uh, you know, behind the scenes, I was embarrassed by that because here I was, you know, in this dream job and opportunity to work in the White House for the president of the United States. And the first piece of work that I put my hands to is just an utter debacle. (laughs) That's one of them. (laughs) Now, you single out Kellyanne Conway for particular scorn as the queen of all leakers in the White House. At one point, you're on her computer even writing a statement about leaks, and you actually claim that you saw evidence right there on her computer that she was Mm -hmm. leaking to reporters. What kind of things did you see? Well, so this is uh, where the host of Morning Joe had said that in the breaks uh, when during the campaign, 
uh, when they weren't filming, that Kellyanne would say, you know, I just wish I could take a shower, you know, whatever. I'm, you know, disgusted to be working for Donald Trump or whatever. And so when they said that on the air, she calls me up to her office as the messaging guy and, hey, let's craft a statement to respond to this. So I'm sitting on her Apple laptop and she's sitting at her desk typing away, texting away on her iPhone and forgets that her texts are linked, uh, that the iMessages are linked. So I'm watching uh, her talk to various reporters from CNN and you know, a bunch of others that the president would call fake news. And she's criticizing her colleagues, uh, saying, you know, bad things about Sean Spicer and Reince Priebus and uh, and Jared Kushner and saying that the president, you know, basically kind of portraying him in a negative light, that he's a child that she has to babysit and like that kind of stuff. And at the time, I just I didn't know what to think of it, because like you said, I'm trying I'm supposed to be writing a, a statement defending Kellyanne from doing exactly what I'm watching her do right here. And I guess I was just kind of offended by it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think every single White House staffer always has the option to, to leave and, and to quit. And, and I think that there can be honor in that, that if there are things that happen that that you disagree with on such a profound level that you feel like you can no longer work there, then it's totally OK to quit. I think that Secretary of Defense Mattis did that. Uh, when he said, you know what, what's happening with Syria right now, I can no longer work here because I'm so out of sync with the president. What I don't think is honorable is being the so-called resistance on the inside. Uh, this man was ultimately elected president by 63 million Americans. And to subvert the wishes of the duly elected president of the United States uh, as a staffer of his, I think, sets a very dangerous precedent. Uh, and in some ways, I've seen that be celebrated, that it's somehow this like act of patriotism if you would subvert the wishes of the president just because you disagreed with him. And um, and so I didn't like that. And uh, so that stuck with me about her. Mm-hmm. And so what's interesting is that's gotten probably more coverage than anything in the book. And um, and I don't really say a whole lot else about her in the book. It's really one of the few scenes there. And people think I set her on fire throughout <laughs> the book. I really don't. It's really just that that one anecdote. Well, I want to ask you something, because it seems to me that no matter what, Kellyanne is the one person in the administration who seems to have total job security and complete immunity Mm -hmm. no matter what. Why do you think that is? Does she have something on the president or what's going on? Well, (laughs) I think what it ultimately is, one thing that, that will never go out of style in Trump world is someone who is willing to go on TV and defend him to the death publicly. And Kellyanne, to her credit, has thick skin, skin like the skin of a rhinoceros, will go on TV, uh, go into the toughest, most toughest, uh, the most tough settings and defend uh, him. And uh, she's proven adept at doing that. And I think he sees the value in that. And ultimately, I think that's why she's been able to stick around uh, longer than a lot of others have. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a quick break and then I'll be back with more with Cliff Sims when we come back in just a minute. If there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe, private online environment and get help at your own time and at your own pace. Anything you share is confidential, and it's so convenient you can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. If for some reason you're not happy with your counselor, though, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. 
Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Kick-Ass News listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code KICK. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com kick. Then simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com kick. Hey folks, Valentine's Day is just around the corner, and if you're like me, you know how hard it can be to come up with a great Valentine's gift that's personal and actually shows you put thought into it. If you want something that's a reminder of the special memories in your relationship, check out Homesick Candles. Homesick Candles' unique scents reflect all the U.S. states and dozens of cities around the world. They're a thoughtful way to tell the story of your relationship's journey. Each candle is made from a natural soy wax blend and comes in a beautiful gift box. Their new first kiss candle even lets you celebrate the spot where you shared your first kiss. Just go to homesick.com and check out their first kiss finder to pick yours. I'll never forget, my wife and I shared our first kiss on an October night in Pasadena, California. And every time I light Homesick's Southern California candle... That distinctive smell of orange blossoms and jasmine in the night air brings all those memories flooding back. Another place I've spent a lot of time over the years is Austin, Texas. Every time I light Homesick's Austin candle, the pine scent reminds me of swimming in Barton Creek. The hints of cedar wood take me all the way back to my boyhood at summer camp in the Texas Hill Country. And the notes of musk and leather even remind me of the night my wife and our friends went bar hopping along Austin's famous 6th Street. That's because none of our other senses have the power to evoke a special memory, a sense of time and place like scent does. Maybe even a moment from long ago that you might have thought you'd forgotten. That's what makes Homesick Candles such a brilliant idea. I'm already thinking about which candles to get for my friend's birthdays, for my brother, and my parents' anniversary, because a gift that actually has meaning to someone is priceless. So go to homesick.com, and for every classic size or three-wick candle you purchase, you'll get a free mini candle of your choice. Just pick your favorite memories and candle, add them to your cart, and for each classic or three-wick, you can add your choice of any mini candle for free. All you have to do is enter the code KICK at checkout. That's homesick.com with promo code KICK for this awesome deal. One more time, homesick.com and promo code KICK. This great offer is only available until February 15th, so order now. And now, back to the show. You worked under two White House Chiefs of Staff, mm-hmm. Ryan's Priebus and John Kelly. Who do you think was more effective in that role? John Kelly. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think there's any doubt. And look, I, you know, if you read the book, you know I have uh, plenty of my differences with John Kelly, but... Uh, he was able to, um, well, I'll tell you, when he first came, I was very optimistic uh, about him because it had been so chaotic and there were no processes in place. And it was just, you know, the Wild West Wing, as we used to call it, the Wild Wild West Wing. <laughs> and John Kelly comes in and here's a military guy uh, and he's going to instill order on this place. And some of that stuff was needed and some of that stuff was really healthy for the president. I think the president liked it, that uh, there was a more structure, there were more structure in place. And I was optimistic about that. And then over time, though, uh, my view of him kind of eroded, that uh, I think that he kind of got caught up in it in a way that I did and others did, uh, the kind of factionalism of it all. uh, And that kind of broke down. Ultimately, I've wrestled with this. So the job of chief of staff with this particular president 
Very, very difficult. I think that the, the press secretary probably has the toughest job, the chief of staff probably uh, right behind that. But ultimately, I think what the, the White House needs is someone who views themselves as the chief of staff, not the chief of the president and staff. The president's going to do what the president's going to do. He's got a style that he has had for decades, long before he came to the White House. He did it in business, and he's brought it into the West Wing now. But the staff needs leadership. That was lacking under Priebus, uh, and it came in under Kelly, and I think in some good ways. But ultimately, Trump is a very social character, and he wants that social interaction. He feeds off of that. It's a big part of who he is, the way that he's wired. And I think that's where Kelly kind of messed up was that it was so restrictive in the access to the president. I do think that you got to be very careful with the, the information flow to the president. You don't want bad information getting to him. You want everything to be well thought out and well presented. I think that's a good thing about what Kelly did. But in, in restricting the information flow, I think it may have gone a little bit too mm-hmm. far. And that's why you saw Trump chafing uh, at Kelly. You also say that you believe that Kelly was one of the people who was responsible or the person responsible for shutting you out and Mm -hmm. that you were uh, passed over for promotions. And at one point, Hope Hicks and Sarah Sanders, they warn you that some, quote unquote, they are coming for you. I'm not talking about Sarah and Hope, Mm -hmm. but someone else. Um, (laughs) Was that John Kelly? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I've wrestled with that. I took it personally, I think, as a lot of people would at first. And then over time. Uh, with a lot of kind of reflection on it all, I don't take it personally anymore. And the reason is I'm far from the only one. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of other people there who I would kind of put in the category of so-called like uh, you know, Trump loyalists or whatever, basically people who were there in the campaign and came in uh, there that that, that Kelly uh, had kind of systematically moved a lot of those people out of, of Trump's orbit. And so ultimately, I tried to get ahead of it a little bit. I, I ran communications for the, the confirmation of Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and got to know him and that team a little bit uh, during that process. And Pompeo offered me a job as senior advisor uh, to him there in the State Department. And so I accepted uh, that job and resigned uh, from the White House. And then ultimately, General Kelly blocked me from being able to Uh, to take that job. And so that's kind of how I uh, left uh, Trump world. And, uh, you know, it it was tough. It was really tough uh, uh, for that to happen. I was so excited to be a part of, uh, you know, what an extraordinary time to be in American foreign policy. Just going to have really cool uh, experiences and expand my horizons there in in new ways. And one of the other things, you know, when I was talking to, to Secretary Pompeo about the job and he asked me why I wanted to leave the West Wing, and I said, you know, I remember you know, what it was like to be on a team. I played basketball in college, and I remember what, you know, tough times usually bring teams together, and that never happened in the West Wing. And it's unfortunate, but it's, you know, I mean, that's why the book is called Team of Vipers, you know, so there's a lot of, you know, it's a tough atmosphere. And I felt like he was really trying to build a team where there was going to be a real, as he called it, a, a esprit de corps uh, there at the State Department. And so I wanted to be a part of that, and so I hated not to be able to, but, uh, you know, God had other plans. Did you ever try to appeal that decision to the president or ask him to intervene on your behalf? Yeah, yeah. So the the last uh, chapter of the book is titled Disposable. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I did. There were various people who talked to him, members of his family, some of his friends. And his take was basically, you know, I always liked Cliff. He was a, a good guy. But uh, John Kelly says he's not trustworthy and, you know, whatever. And I don't know what to think about it. And ultimately, he made a decision to not engage, which, again, I took personally at first. But then with some reflection, that's been replicated many, many times. I uh, found that loyalty is a little bit of a one-way street in uh, uh, the Trump dynamic there. And the last line of, of the book is that I had let my personal relationship with pr- the president blind me to the one unfailing truth of Trump world. 
and that is that if you didn't share his last name, uh, you were disposable. And mm-hmm. so it did take a lot to, to for me to process being kind of unceremoniously abandoned by the president of the United States uh, there uh, at the one time I would ever kind of need him. And all he had to do was say, you know, hey, I know that you guys didn't get along and the things, but whatever, he's getting out of your hair. He's going to the State Department. Just let him be. And he, he chose not to do that. And and, uh, and that's OK. I, I don't hold it uh, against him in, in any way, but it was certainly tough to stomach at the time. Yeah, it does seem that loyalty is a one way street with President Trump. Um, and I even sort of question whether that wouldn't apply to his family, uh, despite what you say. I wonder if some of what we hear about the Russia investigation turns out to be true and Mueller decides to indict Kushner or Don Jr., do you think the president would sell them out to save himself? Oh, that's just that's a hypothetical road I don't oh. want to go down. Because, okay. you know, the, the Russia thing, I just there's too many unknowns at this point at For this sure. point we just we don't know what's going to happen so i'd probably rather just not go okay. go down the hypothetical road on that okay well can i ask you this have you been interviewed by the Mueller investigation i haven't i haven't you know a lot of the things that uh well, I'll say this: a lot, a lot of the uh, the one un- rule in the West Wing that everyone kind of stuck by is nobody really talked about it. Yeah. Uh, nobody wanted to talk about it. Nobody wants to get a subpoena and whatever. And it <laughs> seems like just from watching the news reports that a lot of the things that uh, that they're looking at would probably precede my time in Trump world. I mean, I see uh, all these people Manafort and uh, Stone and I mean, you name it. All these various characters were gone uh, long before I came in, really toward the end of the campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I'm just kind of a, a passive observer, mm-hmm. which is actually you know one of the points that I make in the book is there's a lot of coverage about like the chaos in the White House and oh my gosh and all this. They must be so crazy working in there. And one of the things that I've realized though is uh, I used the example of the Comey firing, that when that happened, uh, so I was sitting in an office in the outer oval just outside the oval office waiting for uh, a colleague of mine to talk to uh, to them. And they came in and said, hey, I can't talk right now. I'm like, no big deal. I'll come back later. I walk back to my desk, which is, you know, just on the other side of the Roosevelt room from the from the oval office. And I look up at the TV and the Chiron says, James Comey fired. So the point of that story is, I was 15 steps from the Resolute desk inside the Oval Office, and even I watched that unfold on television. So imagine what it's like for the 350 White House staff who were over in the Eisenhower Executive Office building. They watch it. They find out a lot of this stuff on the news the same way that a lot of other people around the country do with the TV muted uh, in the office, wherever they happen to be. So it's really a small group around the president who experiences a lot of these things and kind of the chaotic, real-time way uh, with him. And then everybody else kind of watches it on TV. And I think certainly the the kind of Russia investigation is one of those where almost everyone there is a, a passive observer on television the way that, that everyone else is. Mm-hmm. Now, we were just talking about Trump's family. And you actually take exception to the media's portrayal of a cold, loveless marriage of convenience between the president and the first lady. What were your impressions of that relationship? Yeah, I think that is one of the great misconceptions that uh, Melania Trump is like on the second floor of the White House residence tapping SOS on the window, just hoping (laughs) somebody hears her and comes and saves her up there. And in my experience, there's actually a lot more uh, affectionate than that. And a couple of examples that I use is, you know, on election night at the very beginning of the book, I do a kind of a minute by minute account of election night. And part of that is, you know, Melania coming in with Barron and the president, uh, then candidate Trump tying uh, his son's tie and, you know, kissing Melania. And, you know, that night, um, 
you know, uh, as they leave uh, and realizes he's won and, oh, my gosh, the weight of the presidency. And she kind of squeezes his hand and says, you know, you're going to be a great president and we're going to do this together. Uh, and then in the White House, there's another scene where we're recording the the Christmas video message with the two of them sitting together. And I walked over there with him and he wanted to make sure that his kind of tie was straight and his uh, lapel pin was on just right. And he walks in and he's kind of like playfully kind of wanting to show off in front of her, wanted to get his stuff done in one take. And he's kind of like nudging her about like, you know, talking to the video crew like, guys, no one's going to be looking at me. Let's be honest. I mean, look at this right here. Everybody's going to be looking at her and kind of flirting and the kind of things that... Um, that make their relationship a lot more human and a lot more intimate than I think that the, the, what the public portrayal of it is. Mm-hmm. That was my experience. And granted, I'm not with them in the in the residence, and I'm sure they have trouble in their marriage in ways that a lot of couples around the country do in really normal ways. But I, but I also thought behind the scenes that it was much more normal and affectionate than people would probably think. Certainly, their marriage must have been tested over the past two years. As a social conservative and an evangelical Christian whose father and grandfather were pastors— How do you reconcile Trump's affairs and the Access Hollywood tape, the porn stars, the lying, all of it with your own values? Yeah, sometimes it's it was difficult. And, you know, I've, I've, that's something that I wrestled with in early parts of the book with whether or not I should take a job on the Trump campaign uh, and and wrestle with kind of throughout my time there at, at various moments. And I, I really try to think of a way to, to sum this up. And I, and I think about what uh, Pastor Franklin Graham said. I think he summed it up better than I could. He said, you know, Donald Trump is not a great picture of the Christian faith, but he has been a great defender of it in the public policy space. And so, uh, like a lot of people, some of the things he does, uh, I, I, chafe, I chafe at some of those things. But I will be eternally grateful for the Supreme Court justices that he that he nominated and got confirmed, that he instructed the Justice Department to no longer pursue action against faith-based organizations, against their tax-exempt status, and various things like like that. that um, and he hadn't always got it right. I mean, I pushed back a lot on you know, really wanting the administration to keep its promise to protect uh, Christian refugees in the Middle East who were persecuted and from war-torn areas there. And so we hadn't always got it right, but I do think from a public policy perspective, there are things that uh, Christians, myself included, will be eternally grateful for. And after everything that you've seen, and now that the president has essentially disavowed you via tweet, do you still respect Donald Trump? Of course. Of course. I mean, one thing mm-hmm. that we know about uh, really? Trump world is uh, no one's all going to be in forever and no one's going to be out forever. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it just kind of depends. It's a really, it, it's fluid. I've really only seen one person get uh, get banished, so to speak, in a really, really intense and serious way. And it was Steve Bannon uh, after he left. And so uh, I, I harbor no ill will toward mm-hmm. the president. Uh, I had an extraordinary experience there. I'll be uh, so grateful for him for my entire life, for, for the opportunity to work in the White House. And I served him as best I could faithfully while I was there. And ultimately, I'm still a supporter of the agenda uh, that he's trying to, to implement. And so I, I hope that he is uh, successful in, in doing that. So we'll see what happens. And Steve Bannon is the one who brought you on board, right? No, it's really more Jeff Sessions. No? Uh, yeah, Jeff oh, Sessions okay. when, and I, because I'm being an Alabamian, I had known him, covered him at my news outlet uh, in Alabama for, for many years. And so he was kind of my segue into uh, the Trump administration. But Steve Bannon, in a pretty funny scene at the beginning of the book, was one of the first people that I, uh, I met there in, in Trump Tower. Okay. Well, I have to ask before we go, with all the chaos, the infighting and the revolving door and just constant turnover within the administration— Doesn't that all fall on the shoulders of the man at the top? I thought he was going to hire the best and the brightest. What happened? 
Yeah, you know, I've heard it said that uh, that every president gets the White House that he deserves. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I, 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 it really struck a chord with me, and I don't know exactly what that means vis-a-vis Donald Trump. Uh, but I will say that, uh, you know, as an executive, as a, as a manager of, of people, uh, definitely pros and cons, in some ways uh, an extraordinary leader, and in some ways his complete aversion to managing the staff has made it a certainly made it a very mm-hmm. difficult place to to work and and ultimately I think he's hurt he's hurt himself uh there by by uh not putting uh the best the best people around him sometimes I mean I think yeah. that's right well real quickly then I know that you have intimate knowledge of the president's hair which is one of the great mysteries of our time what kind of architecture goes into achieving that look? <laughs> I don't know. I've never been there when he's exactly setting up, but uh, a lot of the media has kind of uh, poked fun at, uh, you know, when we would do the recording sessions, I would be the one there with the, the Tresemme hairspray on, on call if we <laughs> if we needed it. But uh, I can say this. It's real. It's legit. I have uh, been it close is. enough to it to know that it's, uh, it's the real deal. All right. Well, again, the book is called Team of Vipers, My 500 Extraordinary Days in the Trump White House. Cliff Sims, thanks so much for talking with me. Uh, Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Cliff Sims for coming on the podcast. Order his book, Team of Vipers, My 500 Extraordinary Days in the Trump White House on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. Whatever struggles you're facing, from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, you can schedule secure video or phone sessions, as well as chat and text with your therapist. And anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Kick-Ass News listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code KICK. So why not get started today? Simply go to betterhelp.com kick and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today. Again, that's betterhelp.com kick. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.